Australia, the age of criminal responsibility is only 10 years old, significantly younger than the worldwide median of 14. Amnesty thinks it's time to change this. Those Aussies, eh? Making children liable for their mistakes from the age of 10. What a shocker. A 12-year-old boy from the Northern Territory is fighting to keep children as young as 10 out of prison. 800 children are incarcerated on average annually and over half are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Duan Hussan took the issue to the global stage, raising it with the United Nations Human Rights Council. I want adults to stop calling 10-year-old kids in jail. Who do that? No wonder Amnesty International's working to change it. Actually, we do that. The age of criminal responsibility in New Zealand is also 10. And today, Amnesty in Aotearoa is launching a similar campaign here to raise it, first to 12, then to 14. These are children, some of whom are still in primary school. They, they really need protection rather than pursuing a, a criminal justice route for them. It's, it's really time that New Zealand made that change. I'm Alexia Russell and today on The Detail we'll unpick the reasons for the campaign. Later with adolescent psychiatrist Dr Ines Delmage, who you've just heard. But first with Amnesty's campaign manager, Lisa Woods. What we're calling for is a range of the criminal age of responsibility to 14 with an immediate raise to 12 and then a change to 14 after any necessary work on ensuring responses to young people who commit crime are appropriate and just. Okay, that's a bit of an earful. Um, Explain to me first why you're doing this. I mean, it doesn't seem to be in response to an actual problem. Well, look, there can be significant harm that will come and coming from this. You know, one of the main reasons we want to see this changed is when you think about brain development of children and young people. So there is absolutely overwhelming medical and psychological evidence that children and young people's brains are still developing, particularly the parts that regulate judgment, impulse control and decision making, meaning it's just not fair or just to hold them criminally liable at such a young age. There's also other things to think about, such as when you look at international human rights standards, which are important. Uh, They uh, say the minimum age is 14. Uh, The global average is just under 12, so we're out of step with our international peers. In Australia, the campaign has moved the dial slightly, with the Australian Capital Territory changing its state laws. We've been slower to act. Two years ago, New Zealand's then Children's Commissioner, Andrew Beecroft, wrote a report calling for just such a law change. It's outdated, it's inappropriate, it's out of step with the rest of the world, and we're talking about children. A 10-year-old, 11, 12 and 13, too young in our view, to stand at a dock and take full responsibility for their behaviour. It should be 14, and we should have moved to that years ago. Most young people in the youth court will be between 14 and 17 years old. However, 12 and 13-year-olds will be included if they're charged with particularly serious offences. 10 or 11-year-olds only end up in court if it's murder or manslaughter. But the rules are a bit bendy. In reality, most children in trouble never see the inside of a court. It's largely left to the police to decide what happens to them next. As part of the restorative justice process, they might be sent to a family group conference where whānau, victims and professionals meet to find solutions without the young person getting a criminal record. Here's Lisa Woods again. 
the thing about criminal age, to explain, it can be a little bit complex because we've got a graduated system. So with 10 and 11-year-olds, for example, they can only be held liable for murder and manslaughter. And isn't hasn't actually been a case, a reported case since the 70s. But the thing is, it's not good law to be having 10 years as the criminal age of responsibility. So even if there hasn't been a case since the 70s, we need to remove that risk. But it is the case with slightly older children under 14 that they are being held liable. And as a result, harm could be occurring there and we need to be addressing that. And what would you say to people who say, They need to be held liable. They have done serious damage. There are victims in this picture. You know, this is not about there being no consequences. There will need to be consequences. But the fact is, and and at the heart of this, is making sure that the consequences are age-appropriate and going to be effective. You know, it is important that the needs and well-being of people who have been harmed are a focus. But there's an incredible amount of mahi and thought leadership out there on this, including, for example, restorative practices and culturally appropriate processes that can work uh, to address harm. Because, you know, ultimately what we want is a system that uh, prevents reoffending, addresses uh, the harm that has been committed in the person that has been harmed in their needs, but also the needs of the person who has been harmed. So whatever it is that is has been driving that problematic behaviour is addressed. But a vote of no confidence in a report into Oranga Tamariki that's yet to be... I mean, I hear a lot of stories about what's going on in Oranga Tamariki. There's so many that I can't actually... Revelations of alleged abuse at an OT youth facility in Christchurch show the agency, the minister and his advisory board are oblivious to what's going on. We don't really, at the moment, have good systems in place to do that, do we? I mean, Oranga Tamariki is... It's in a mess, quite frankly. Yeah, and that's a really good point, and that's something that's really important with this campaign. So one of the reasons we're saying you can have an immediate raise to the age of uh, 12 is because, in practice, uh, all uh, what would be considered offending by young people under 12 in practice is dealt with already in the care and protection system. So So that actually wouldn't change anything. So that wouldn't change anything, that's right. But... The reason why we want to see uh, an immediate age to 12, but then a, a, a bit of a pause to ensure that work can be done to ensure that responses to those slightly older children under 14 who commit harm are appropriate. Because, you know, we don't want to be taking young people and children from one system that's creating harm to another um, that's also creating harm. So absolutely, we recognise that changes are needed there, but it's important to see the government commit to those changes. Is this a situation where... You're trying to create a law change, but the actual problem is deeper than than just how, you know what age we hold children responsible for the crimes. The, you know the actual problem is the wraparound welfare approach, the how we treat children who are going off the rails. Absolutely, and actually, I'd step back and say, you know, the the wider problem is both our criminal justice system and obviously the Oranga Tamariki system. We know that across these big systems, transformation is needed, and that's really important to keep that big picture in mind. But and we are absolutely calling on government to be taking those bold steps to transform these systems. But while that bigger work is going on, there are immediate things the government can be doing to reduce harm 
while that transformational work is going on and raising the criminal age is one of them. And it's by certainly not uh, the only one. There are a number of other policies in the youth justice space that would make a difference including, for example, extending the jurisdiction of uh, the youth court. So at the moment, for example, when we look at young people who might need to go through the adult court process, um, there's no, there's not the same protections as there is in the youth court process. So, for example, judges that are trained to communicate with young people, and you can imagine how what type of harm that would have on that young person. But then, even if you look at um, youth justice facilities, which we know are a major problem, and and youth justice facilities, although when I talk to people in the sector, they call them youth prisons because that's essentially what they are. And we know there are major problems across those. Uh, We know that there have been high reports of self-harm. We know that there are deeply problematic seclusion and restraint um, practices that have occurred. But I was actually just reading an old Rangatamariki report the other day from 2019, and it was talking about uh, young people who had uh, re-offended, that 88% of young People in a youth justice facility had reoffended within 12 months. Bailey Junior Kuririki is in jail again. This time, Kuririki, who's still the country's youngest convicted killer, is charged with assaulting his girlfriend. Less than 10 months out of jail, Bailey Junior Kuririki was back before a judge on a serious charge of assault. So if you look at uh, the system that we're pushing young people in who have um, committed some offences, it seems deeply flawed and not working. So why would we want to continue with that approach? There was some research done in the UK looking at uh, young people with um, even very low-scale contact with the criminal justice system, the likes of cautions, that kind of thing. And what was found through that research was that there was an increase in recidivism, so an increase in reoffending associated with even that very low-scale uh, contact with the youth justice system. And as a child psychiatrist, that made perfect sense to me because the task of adolescence, if you like, is to acquire an identity, it's to acquire a sense of themselves and if we're telling them, uh, you know, this is who you are, then, then that becomes hardwired fairly quickly. Adolescent forensic psychiatrist Dr Ennis Delmage is an expert in how the brains of young people develop. In terms of what we have learned from uh, neuroscientific research, we've had a wealth of data looking at the frontal lobes of the brain. And the frontal lobes are the part of the brain where personality is thought to sit Uh, It's also the part of the brain that's responsible for um, what would in lay terms be called common sense. So um, managing your impulses, uh, managing risk taking, managing sensation seeking, um, thinking about the consequences of your actions. All of that is thought to sit in the frontal lobes. Unfortunately for us, the frontal lobes are the last bit of the brain to develop. And brain development uh, continues through throughout adolescence and into early adulthood. Currently, we think that the fast pace of brain development taps out at about the age of 25. Uh, So that's when the frontal lobe could be uh, considered fully mature. Uh, And then there is a subpiginous kind of track with continuing brain development up until about the age of 35. And then, unfortunately, things tend to go downhill. Um, But certainly those young people um, uh, from the ages of 10 to, to 14 are extremely vulnerable We know, again, from um, psychological research that uh, adolescents often have um, reactive and intense emotional responses to threatening or rewarding stimuli when you compare them with adults, which is relevant to offending behaviour, of course. They're a highly impulsive group. They often take greater risks than adults would take. Uh, They tend to be a sensation-seeking group. 
Um, they have a gradually emerging uh, ability to empathize, so that's not hardwired in um, uh, immediately. At the age of 10, it's a gradual track into, into adulthood. Uh, and they're also very vulnerable to peer influence. Dr Delmage says New Zealand's position on the age of criminal responsibility is out of step with current neuroscience, as well as with the laws of many other countries. If you look at the international picture as to where countries set them in the age of criminal responsibility, there's a huge degree of variation. Uh, the lowest age that I could find through my research was North Carolina, which sets it at six, uh, six years six, of age. Six years uh, of age. Correct. Um, the uh, the uh, average uh, minimum age would be um, 12 internationally, uh, even accounting for those um, outliers like North Carolina. But interestingly, the, the South America tends to be more charitable and they set their ages at either 16 or 18 uh, for the most part. So there is a big degree of variation in terms of where countries uh, have decided that children should be um, uh, culpable, criminally responsible. Um, and I think w- uh, the, the reality is that the law is being informed by the, the science. And so the United Nations have obviously taken into account um, the, the lay of the land in terms of the, uh, the uh, emerging neuroscientific literature. In 2007, the UN uh, indicated that the age should be set at 12 internationally. But in 2019, they changed that statement to say that they felt it should be set at 14, commensurate with where the, the, the science is going. Um, so I think it's, it's a very live topic for debate. And um, 14 is a very good target. There are some that would argue for a, a, even a higher age, um, looking at, um, as I said, young people's developmental aptitudes. Um, but I think we're um, currently campaigning for a, a, an age of 14, really because the number of children under that age who are prosecuted in, in New Zealand is small. Uh, it's rare for children aged 10 to 14 to be committing serious offences. So that's a good thing, obviously. Um, um, but we feel that um, the economic impact, therefore, of, of raising the age wouldn't be too major. It's a quick win from our perspective. And actually, it will help protect Tamariki uh, in the future. They all come from backgrounds of trauma, violence, disadvantage, chaos, and often drug and alcohol use within the family. They are, in a sense, representatives of families at the most disadvantaged and struggling end. Unfortunately, these are young people who often don't have a good sense of identity. They're um, often um, expelled from schools. The uh, mother often has you know, other Tamariki to look after. Father may be absent dealing with his own problems. Um, the young people uh, aren't allowed to play with the pro-social children because the positive pro-social children's parents don't want them associating with them. Um, so they go out into the street and what do they find? Well, at the end of the road, there's a gang that says, well, maybe what you're good at is stealing or taking drugs across town or um, getting into fights for us, that kind of thing. And unfortunately, that, that then becomes their sense of, of what they're good at rather than they're good at sports or they're good at maths. They lose those opportunities, I think, to have a positive sense of themselves. And unfortunately, uh, I think the the youth justice system, for all the good it does, I think it also, uh, there's a peril there that it can uh, label these children um, inadvertently. On the other side, what are the chances are that the reoffending is happening because they got away with it last time? Yeah, I mean, again, that's an interesting question. So in terms of recidivism and strategies to manage it, there was a notion, I think, certainly in the UK in the 90s, a sort of penal populism drive by the campaigning government 
that you needed to be tougher on crime. So I'm sure you've come across this uh, phrase, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Um, well, they were certainly tough on crime. I- I'm not sure they really addressed the sociological causes. And in fact, often with young people and adults as well, where they're um, making a decision to commit an offence or not, that the primary consideration for them is, will I get caught for this? Not, will I receive a long sentence? Often, m- most of the rangatahi that I deal with don't know what this length of sentence would be that, that's associated with their act. Um, so really, that, that sense that we can punish our way out of this is, is um, fairly misguided from my point of view. And really, uh, what tends to be most effective for the young people we work with is a, an incentive-based approach. And again, as a child psychiatrist, that does make sense to me because I think these children have been punished for their whole lives um, through abuse experiences, mistreatment, neglect, And that punishment has never been contingent on whether they've been good or bad or done nothing. They've just been repeatedly punished. So to try to add in further punishment as a method of shaping their behaviour is um, fairly hopeless and also extremely expensive, might I add, um, as a strategy for for deterring people from reoffending. What does tend to be helpful is is instilling a sense of citizenship and giving them a sense of belonging, um, tapping into the local marae and building a sense of cultural identity, working with Farno, um, building those connections and uh, hopefully re-establishing some kind of education vocational pathway. That Those are the effective routes out. And again, I, I don't want to um, uh, be completely negative about the youth justice system. It does do some things really excellently. So we've got um, the Young Adults Pilot Court, which is uh, now going strong. Uh, we've got family group conferences. New Zealand, of course, pioneered those and they've been adopted internationally in various different countries. So there are some fantastic things about what we do, but we can be better. I think we need to think about what's a sensible and effective approach to young people and children that commit crime. And the Children's Commissioner has for many years said that youth justice facilities need an overhaul, that they're not working. So that's clearly not the solution. Actually, it's a good theoretical system. Actually, brilliant. But it hasn't been practised well. It hasn't been resourced well. It's fallen into something of a hole hasn't been well-led. Uh, police, Oranga Tamariki, Education and Health, I think, have collectively dropped the ball. The challenge is for them to prioritise child offending. We talk about national conferences to reduce prison numbers, to reduce numbers in the justice system. This is where we need to focus. What we're saying is that for anyone under the age of 14, funnelling them through uh, the criminal justice system is not going to result in effective outcomes. And we need to have a think about what a, a better uh, and more effective ways to respond to youth and children who commit harm. At the moment, Lisa, we, we've got the situation in Auckland and, and, and part of the parts of the country too where we're getting ram raiders as young as 12 years old smashing stolen cars through shop windows and then the police deal with them and a week later they're back doing exactly the same thing. It's the same kids. How would this change help that situation? Well, I think ultimately we need to look at the drivers. We need to be focused on solving what's behind the problematic behaviour, the problems caused by a lack of resources and services in many communities, such as mental health and health support. Uh, You know, simply locking people up isn't a solution. This is just creating a never-ending cycle that traps people. But that's a problem. They're not locking them up. They're sending them back to their... I was going to say parents, but the places where they live. Yeah, well, I mean, in that case, I'd say, you know, are we actually addressing the drivers? 
And I think, you know, as we have talked about, you know, there are big problems across the Aranga Tamariki system, and that's really well known. And the need for transformational change is very well known. So, you know, one of the core asks is that we're saying is, you know, whilst you can immediately raise the age to 12, there is fundamental work that needs to be done to ensure that how we're responding is effective and actually wrapping these children and young people uh, around with the support that they need to address the drivers behind their behaviour. If your child was out and about in the streets and a 12-year-old ram raider hit and killed them or a hormonal teenage 13-year-old whacked them over the head with a block of wood, with a lethal effect, how would you feel about that person not facing any punishment? You know, I think it's important that when we think about consequences that the needs and well-being of people who have been harmed are a focus. And, you know, when I reflect on what I would want, you know, for my children, uh, if they'd been harmed, then absolutely I'd want to make sure that their needs are met in terms of that harm and that would be incredibly important and of course incredibly um, you know deeply deeply troubling for the whole family and whanau but I'd also want the child or young person who had committed the harm to have the effective support to address what was behind their behaviour. You know, the last thing I would want is for any child to enter a system that further harms them. You know, I want the best for my kids, but actually I want the best for children everywhere. And no one comes out of this uh, well or with better outcomes if someone's going into a system that's simply going to result in worse outcomes. There are, unfortunately, now and again, fortunately very rarely, but um, they do occur, some very high-profile events which um, shock the public. Um, they're shocking to us as professionals working in this field, um, but, but also you know, fairly shocking in terms of um, media coverage of these kind of events. The faces of 10-year-old murderers. Tonight, the first new pictures of Thompson and Venables, new revelations about their years in custody and threats to hunt them down if they're released. I am fully and utterly in favour of doing anything to keep those lunatics, those evil, wicked, vile people into prison, Thompson and Venables. What do we do with them? We keep them locked up for life. Because at the end of the day, it's Ralph and Denise and the rest of their families and friends that are doing a life sentence, not them. In the UK in 1992, toddler James Bolger was lured to his death from a Merseyside shopping mall by two 10-year-old boys. James's mutilated body was later found four kilometres away on a railway line. The crime horrified the country. There was a, a big public sentiment at the time that uh, young people were um, risky and were involved in um, uh, high rates of offending, which actually wasn't true statistically, but such was the public perception and the, the public outcry about this, um, um, this terrible event that um, uh, the, the law kind of followed suit, unfortunately, which, as I mentioned, was contrary to the direction that neuroscience had been going in, which was saying that actually young people of this sort of age, and uh, Thompson and Venables were 10 years of age, by the way, when the murder happened, uh, young people at that kind of age really aren't making decisions in the same way that, that adults are. 
So, as I said, extremely rare events. Um, they're horrific and they're dreadful um, when they occur, but I think it's time now for society to adopt a more mature and measured and actually economically logical approach to managing these tamariki rather than putting them through a court system and uh, labelling them as criminals, which the outcome is fairly predestined by this point. We know what happens with that approach, unfortunately. And the government says it's working through the implications of a change in the age of criminal responsibility and the matter will be considered by Cabinet in due course. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Sarah Robson. Thanks to Lisa Woods and Dr Ennis Delmage. Kakite anō.